Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, I would like to just thank our sponsors for this episode, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree executive fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode is a friend of the podcast, Dr. Vinit Aurora is back. Dr. Aurora is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. She is a hospitalist like me, and she has been on the show several times. Most recently, she's been on the show discussing some extraordinary work being done at the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and we stepped into a topic that needed more exploration, and it's the topic of what the COVID-19 pandemic is doing to the promotion and tenure process within medicine. Now, promotions and tenure is obviously makes you think more of the academic pathways, but we also discuss how it's just affecting hiring in medicine in general and the extraordinarily destructive impact it's having, the way it is exposing structural racism and structural gender inequity within the process, and also how we can begin as individuals to move the needle, specifically ensuring our curriculum vitae, our CVs accurately reflect the work that is being done around the pandemic and also around trying to reverse structural racism within the practice of medicine as well. This is a critical conversation. Vinny is right in the thick of all of this and she has been for a long time. So she brings a really unique and a really vital perspective to this and she's also extraordinarily energizing. And we get into topics like the minority tax in promotions and how that impacts people, the way the pandemic has exposed all of these things, as well as some really important granular tools around how to leverage your own curriculum vitae, your own CV, to demonstrate the contributions that you're making and the matrix that she's created in partnership with the Women in Medicine Summit and Dr. Shika Jane, which there's links to this in the show notes. This is all really, really important stuff. And I think that this episode is extraordinarily timely and extraordinarily valuable. Before we get to the episode, just want to encourage everyone, please do take a look at Explore the Space wherever you'd like to download your shows. Please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review as well. And please share with your friends and colleagues, whether it's word of mouth or on social media or however you like to do that, it really does help the show out. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com, and you can follow me on social media, Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show as well. So without further ado, let's get to the episode with Dr. Vinit Aurora. Vinny, welcome back to Explore the Space. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Mark. I feel like we left some work undone. We left some some homework that we had to take care of. And I know that because 
you came on the show with Samir Shah a couple of months ago, and we talked about what the Journal of Hospital Medicine is doing to amplify voices and to share perspectives. And one of those important things that came out of that was you helping us to better understand what the COVID pandemic is doing in a place that I don't think anybody may have anticipated at least happening in the first place and certainly not the impact. And that is around the promotions and hiring and movement of our physician colleagues all around the country through the various pipelines of their careers. And then, right, we follow you on social media. We know you. You you have created this place where I feel like you are the the person to go to, to give us the, what I love is that strategic sense. We're trying to wrestle with so many different things this pandemic is doing. I feel like your understanding of what the potential it has to disrupt and the way it already is disrupting people's careers is and how we can start to mitigate. This is why you're here. So let me ask you just to take us to that high level and give us what you're seeing from your experience as a physician, as a tenured professor who's been through the entire pipeline, as someone who does so much mentorship, as someone who hires physicians, as someone who does all of these things, in addition to your research, what what is COVID-19 actually doing to our hiring, retention, and promotion pipeline? Thanks, Mark, for having me. It's a great question and one that we have been really wrestling with because, um, you know, even pre-COVID, I would say that, you know, the academic pipeline has always been um, a very um, vulnerable pipeline. You know, people always worry about falling off, you know, especially around career transitions from assistant professor to associate professor. Uh, If you're a researcher, it's like, am I going to get a K award? Am I going to get the next R01? Um, That bridge is a really tough bridge to make. If you're in a clinician educator, you're like, am I going to get some protected time? Um, And if you are in academics, you're really thinking, how am I going to get through the promotion process? The challenge with COVID has been that it's completely resulted in an upheaval into the way faculty and academia work, uh, particularly in the medical profession. And so this includes uh, perhaps you're redeployed to the frontline clinical care and your primary work is as a researcher. Perhaps you're a clinician educator who's had to pause what you're doing on innovation to literally take your entire medical school through virtual e-learning. Or you might be a primary care physician, a leader with a heavy clinical load um, who's now pausing to convert your entire practice to telehealth and ensure that all of your patients are doing okay. And so whatever you are doing as a physician, um, as somebody in medicine, it's been disrupted. And one of the challenges with um, academic careers, um, especially when we hire people, is, you know, well, that's great that you want to be a great doctor. What else do you want to do? That's the question that actually gets you in through the door. Shouldn't be the question that gets you in through the door, but that's often what you see academic CVs. It's like, I take care of patients and I teach, I do research, I help with quality improvement, I'm a leader, I'm an administrator. And all of those, what else that I'm doing with my career beyond clinical care have been squeezed out or fundamentally altered with COVID such that if you happen to be going up for promotion or in this reappointment time or kind of in a transition period with funding, you're going to feel pretty vulnerable because you're going to look at your CV and you're going to be like, a lot of people have been saying, oh my God, I, I 
I'm too far away from the benchmark or what is it going to look like for me this year because this is my reappointment year or my promotion year. And one of the things that um, I want to highlight here is that we should remember to document the impact of everything you're doing, even during COVID time. And that is important for a CV. Particularly important, I want to do a put a plug in here for um, women in medicine, as well as minorities in medicine. I mean, this is a very challenging time for anybody in the equity space. And for women and minorities who are facing additional taxes, and it could be uh, any uh, anyone facing additional taxes, but I, we see that it's disproportionate on those two groups, primarily because of the burdens of child rearing at home with remote learning and children um, not in school. And the second is we're facing two pandemics, as everyone knows. It's not just COVID, but uh, really the issues of racism uh, as a public health crisis. And we're seeing a lot of our Black colleagues in medicine being asked to pause what they're doing and participate as teachers or as counselors and coaches or what colleagues of mine, uh, Dr. Peak, uh, Monica Peak in my organization has dubbed the minority tax. So we see a lot of um, our minority colleagues sort of feeling the disproportionate burn of not only facing racism, but also being the faces of how to fix it. And so that's actually a problem as well. And so how do we how do we help both of those groups um, so that they can document their impact and continue on successful trajectories so that we don't undermine equity in the promotions process? The promotions process, what I'm hearing is it sounds like, and, and what I know of it, is it's 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 rigorous and it's it had clarity it has these benchmarks and these steps that you go through and it's inflexible and it's been this way for a long time and whenever i see something like that i have come to much better understand and acknowledge the privilege that comes with being a white male physician in america what I see when I hear that and then I hear you describe and I see not just in your words now, but in the way you talk about it on social media and the way that we are learning about the impacts that these processes are having on women and on minorities and this minority tax, which is very real. We're looking at a process that was created by white dudes to amplify white dudes. It happened a long time ago, <laughs> but it was ne it's never been fixed. And this is a real tension, right? This is something where it was, let's create this thing that's going to keep us looking the way we look and acting the way we act however many 50, 75, 100 years ago, it's never been modified to the point where it can adapt to these incredible new challenges, but it has to because this is our profession. We are heterogeneous. We don't all look like Mark Shapiro anymore and we shouldn't. And we want to move as fast away from that as we can, but we have this older model. That's a tension. It is an absolute tension. And it's it's definitely, this is the element of what people are calling structural racism, yep. structural sexism. It's like, it's baked into the structure. And how do yep. you change the system and change the structure so that it actually promotes justice? And so that really, you you, you have confidence that it, that it's going to actually end up with the right decisions. I, I mean, I will say, take a, take a step back, you know, 
uh, for example, for women, many of whom um, have faced long training times and decide then to take academic jobs, you know, this promotions process, it really does coincide with those childbearing years. And that can be very challenging, you know. And so we already see even pre-COVID, we see that there are elements of the promotions process that don't actually sync up in line with other issues that women are facing, for example. So I think that's just one example of where we need some more flexibility or thought process. And I want to say there are promotions committees that have started to reform and be exceptionally creative and, you know, award tenure, for example, for diverse amounts of diverse types of work. There's promotions now that are based not just on a research path, but on clinical excellence or on administrative work, on quality improvement work, on service. But I still think that you are right in the sense that this is a pretty rigid process. And those benchmarks, when you have benchmarks and, you know, somebody doesn't meet the benchmark, but it's because of a pandemic that they couldn't put in their R01 or their, you know, something got disrupted. We have to have some type of a flexible approach so that it's not this up and out track, but that people can actually be be, um, sort of secure in the fact that the institution is going to help them reach the benchmark. And that's what I think is the important part is that when you have a benchmark, it it also behooves an institution to say, we're going to help you meet that benchmark so that you can actually be successful. What is your sense of urgency around this? And I ask you this because that last thing that you just said, we would hope our institutions are reaching out to their faculty and to their employees and to their recruiting pipelines to say, how can we help you? What is the sense of urgency around this happening? And and to phrase the question another way, what happens if we don't? I think that we are in a very, very vulnerable period financially at a a lot of our academic institutions. We've seen the numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. And um, the people that are going to be most at risk are going to be the ones during transition periods. When they go up for promotion or reappointment, it'll be like, hmm you know, they don't look so great, you know, and maybe there's uh, less money to offer for protected time for this person. So it's almost like a vicious cycle where you're like, I couldn't make the benchmark because I was redeployed. I went up for promotion and then I, uh, there was less money for me to actually continue doing my research. And so now I'm, I'm back at square one. And so I think that if we don't start moving on this quickly, we're going to end up with a pretty vicious cycle. Cause keep in mind that universities have within their ability, put the pause on some of this stuff and reevaluate and change. But at the same time, I don't see a lot of discussion about it. I have seen some forward thinking folks out there. Um, Bob Wachter, tweeted about it at UCSF. I've seen Jen Heemstra, you know, write about it, but we haven't seen a lot of people really raise this flag and say, we need to be moving on this. This feeds into your point. And I think what I may be sensing as well, that the reason that we're not seeing it is because of what is baked in already, what is hardwired already, these components of structural racism, these components of structural gender inequity. 
people have to reach in and look in and acknowledge that those are why we're not just saying, you know what, this is a huge problem. Our faculty is vulnerable. We're redeploying people all over the place. We have really smart people already writing about this and sounding the horn. I do have that moment of pause around why this isn't already done. That to me in and of itself is alarming, right? That it is. It's, it's, it's podcasting and it's Twitter and it's social media as opposed to position statements saying we acknowledge that this is our size of our faculty. These are the ones who are in transition this year. You're our teammates and we're going to have your back and here's how that we're not seeing that yet. That gives me that moment of pause of like, man, this is this is a big rock to flip. I mean, not only are we not seeing it, I think we're a lot of our junior faculty in our organizations are seeing statements about benefits getting cut and salaries getting cut. And they are at home with their families silently (laughs) wondering what their future is going to be. And so, um, you know, and they might be at home with their families because they're quarantined or they might not be at home with their family because they're in. Yeah. yeah, They might be not with their family because they're in the COVID ICU and they got it or, and they're staying somewhere else because they don't want to bring it home. You got it. That's right. That's right. So I would say that, um, there is a sense of urgency to this in the sense that, you know, talk about, not wanting to lose your workforce and lose the morale of your workforce. It's an incredibly important thing, especially because the reason academic physicians go to academia, right, is to make that impact and to be successful with their professional development. If they don't see forward trajectory, why would they stay? And so that's another important uh, piece to the puzzle here. And, um, you know, I think specifically just wanted to highlight some of the issues that, you know, women particularly we need to think about and those that have heavy caregiver responsibilities. I mean, you know, I, I sit on our promotions committee and, you know, one of the things that, um, I hear, I hear, I also hear about other people who sit on other promotions committees and, you know, there's always this unwritten rule about like evaluating a woman's CV, especially when you see some decrease in productivity, like she's marching around along, but she does pretty well, but then it drops. And I've seen this in my own CV as well. And then you see the drop and somebody will always say, well, well, what happened here in this year? It's not written on your CV, but somebody else in the table will usually volunteer. Oh, she had a baby then. And then I'll be like, oh, okay, you know, we'll let that go, you know? And it's always struck me as odd that it required that, uh, like somebody posted in um, Academic Research Moms Facebook group recently, should I annotate my CV with the years that I had children? And it was like a flood of comments to be like, no, 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 no. And then some people to be like, yes, if it dropped precipitously and you need to explain that. And I was like, is there, is, is our... Is our society so callous to this that we cannot understand that three months of maternity leave would uh, drop somebody's and, and, you know, having a baby uh, would drop somebody's productivity in an understandable way that we would want to allow for? And so that was just an interesting, um, you know, reflection that I had, you know, being having just had a baby myself, but not having to worry about this. I'm like, why would anyone need to worry about this while they were going through this process. And so I just highlight that as an example of the fact that, you know, even pre-COVID, 
promotions committees didn't even have a way to think about, well, this year is the year she had a baby. Now, there is obviously some groups that have the you can stop the clock or you can get a year off exemption kind of thing. So there was some of that. But there are still, you know, thinking about structures, there's still a lot of structures that haven't baked that in yet and haven't thought about how to deal with that. I would suggest that what you just described Well, for me, that's going to be the example that I use going forward. And thank you for sharing it. And I would invite other people to keep in their back pocket what you just said, so that when somebody asks for an example of how does structural bias happen, how does structural racism happen? Structural bias happens when white men who look like me a long time ago sat in a room and created this process that wasn't accounted for. It never got revised. And now here we are where something that is so important and so vital is completely overlooked and then has to be like made up for ad hoc with somebody else speaking and no one knowing what to do. It's insanity. Right. It, that is so right. bizarre. And yet right. that's, that's why that's I say to people, that's your example. So when someone says it's not real, it doesn't happen. That there's the example of exactly how it happens. And myself as a white male physician, like I'll own part of that. Like I haven't been around that long, but it's on me too. And that's Mm -hmm. where we can start to get better because that is totally wrongheaded. Absolutely. So that being said, (laughs) we acknowledge that there's work to do, but we also would like to ensure that our teammates who are in this process, who are doing the things that you just described, right? And it was interesting to hear you list out the various things that a promotions committee will look at pre-COVID, research, advocacy, writing, teaching, all of those sorts of things. COVID has actually allowed all of us to do all of those things, but using different platforms. So it's yes. it's also important that the individual is able to capture what they're doing and also what they have not been able to do and represent it in the same professional manner. And this is where I think we can start to change how things are done using the same tool, which is the curriculum vitae, the CV. You've yes. created this really powerful matrix. And I know it's you and it's Shika Jane and it's Lori Bedke and Tom Varghese, these incredible people, the Women in Medicine Summit. There's this group of people who've come together. I was delighted to be a part of it. Avio Glasser, Charlie Ray, to create what you've created is this matrix that lays out how to capture, how to represent this broad palette of opportunities that COVID has presented. Can you give us the kind of that backstory of the matrix? Yeah, so I actually, um, so sitting on my promotions committee, I, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, tables that are, you know, people present, uh, you know, when chairs write about the candidate, uh, when other letter writers write about the candidate, there's often a lot of tables that come with that. And there's one table that actually articulates like this person is X percent clinical, X percent research, X percent education. And, um, and then you kind of have to, uh, the big question always is, you know, is this person's scholarly output relative to the amount of percent scholarship of time they have? It does that meet the benchmark, you know? So I tend to think about this in this matrixed environment because sitting on a promotions committee, you're always seeing these tables. And I, when I was listening to um, 
the women and academic research moms um, Facebook group and some of the people on Twitter talk about this and seeing some of the early papers that women were not publishing or putting together clinical trials as much as men around COVID. I began to think, well, how do we account for that? You know, we can't just let this happen. And so I thought, okay, we can use a matrix. And this could be a supplemental sheet that could go to the promotions committee that could be part of your CV. And it would allow you to capture the impact of what you're doing, because what you're doing has changed so dramatically, so quickly. And so, and we would not only want to capture what you have been doing, but also what you can't do. So for example, you know, perhaps you're a researcher and your grant enrollment has halted uh, because of social distancing and you your institution has put a halt on all research studies you know um, that don't relate to covid which has happened to many of us and so um, how do you document that because that that means that when it comes time to restart your work you're gonna have to spend time figuring out how to restart it we've already seen conference presentations get canceled or redeployed uh, there's the clinical redeployment telehealth um, and so in each bucket sort of clinical research, education, those are the big three. I would say that there's things that you have been asked to do because of COVID, things that you cannot do because of COVID that have been halted. And then there might be new ideas that you're doing because of COVID. I mean, there's a lot of new research going on, a lot of new education, educational electives. People have a lot of new clinical leadership that they've taken on. And all of that takes a lot of time. I mean, just running a COVID unit, like that would be, you don't have to have your entire matrix filled because if you just said, hi, I'm Mark Shapiro and I ran the COVID unit in my hospital (laughs) for 12 weeks, like people would be like, okay, this explains what this person has been doing and um, you know, highlights what they what why they haven't made um, progress in these other areas. And so the idea behind the matrix is to capture everything you're doing, including some of these novel things that people are doing that might not normally make it into a CV, but that have had a huge impact on COVID. I mean, I know physicians who are out there in the maker community that are making face shields, that are making PPE, that are mobilizing community donations of cloth masks or food or shelter for their for for uh, patients. Um, for homeless. There are tons of social media examples of physicians who are out there doing advocacy and media, fighting the infodemic, op-eds, going on TV, appearing in news articles, as well as social media, using every platform they have to really highlight the issues, not just about the pandemic, but also about racism. And so this is also where I think um, you know, we have to think about our minority colleagues who are doing a lot of this work. How are we going to capture that? So maybe somebody is predominantly in the education sphere and they teach about something clinical and now they've been, you know, asked to, you know, put together a compassion fatigue burnout discussion at their institution that also touches upon issues around racial trauma. I mean, that's a huge undertaking and needs to be accounted for, um, and particularly in the virtual environment, et cetera. And so this, the, the idea behind the matrix is that it it actually serves as a way to sort of add up your percent effort to 100 to say, what have you been doing? And also account for disruptions. So instead of relying on that sole random voice in the room to be like, she had a baby or this person was out sick, just document it on the bottom of your matrix to say what your personal caregiving or health needs were. Maybe you were quarantined with your sick family members and you were taking care of them. Perhaps you had your kids at home and you were primarily responsible 
for their homeschooling and their telehealth work and teleschooling. So instead of just assuming everybody's got an even playing field, just document it there so that people can be like, wow, this person did a lot of education. And look, they also were facing some additional burdens at home that somebody else may not be facing. So that a promotion and tenure committee and a and a, somebody who's even thinking about, you know, just, uh, you know, awarding a raise, for example, could say, okay, who has gone above and beyond and really met the benchmark? What I draw out of that, and there's a couple of things. One, we have to just remember the fundamentals of the CV. It's to set, it's to record all the things you've done, but it's also to set you apart. It's to help illustrate the, the whole you. And I think what you just described allows someone to actually do that. I also think it's really smart. We know that our profession has extraordinary work to do around structural racism. We know that we need to be great allies and we need to learn how to do it. We're not there yet. It's going to take the work of a lifetime, but we want to encourage people who are being asked to do some of that work. This matrix would apply to that as well, because this is new stuff, recognizing an extraordinarily large, critically important new challenge. If you are being asked to do these things, this would allow it to become part of your professional record so that you can build your career around it. And I think that that is a critical important point. I would also just add one thing. This is not just for academics. This is for anybody who is in the professional pipeline. And I say that because I just want to share a quick story with you. So I do, I'm, I'm intimately involved in hiring and building our hospital medicine division where I live. And we get CVs all the time and we're interviewing candidates all the time. Got a CV. This was a couple of weeks ago, reviewed it. The CV itself, to be totally honest, looked like a lot of CVs. It had the work history. It had the, you know, the, the things that were done in residency. It, there was yep. nothing in it that really made it jump off the page. And when I talked to my colleagues, because I was the last person to interview this candidate, they were all really on the fence. Like, you know, mm. fine, but not great. Nothing that really sets them apart. We have some other people. Let's see what happens and let's get the references and finish. I spoke with this candidate and as we're talking, I noticed that they were in an area that had been very heavily hit in, uh, in April with the COVID pandemic. And I asked them about what that experience had been like. And they opened up this 10 minute discussion about how they created the ICU hospitalist co-management program in partnership with the rest of the division. They were in, they helped create the, the, the new ICU that was set up, the new COVID ICU. They staffed it. They did, they worked at night. These were all things that they shared with me that were not on their CV. They sounded incredible. This is hard-won knowledge. We want this in my area, too. I asked their references. Does this sound right? Oh, my gosh, Mark. They went above and beyond. They were there at night. They filled open shifts. We cannot tell you how helpful and instrumental they were. They stepped up like you can't. The letter of intent went out that night. We're going to hire this person immediately. But it wasn't on their CV. We almost missed it. Wow. And I think that's a great example of how cultivating a CV to reflect what you actually do takes a lot of work and document your impact. And I know that we both know Avi Glasser, for example, has done an amazing job with examples on how to document your um, social media impact on your CV. Um, And that takes work. It takes a lot of people need to put the work in. Um, And so this is kind of the same thing with COVID contributions um, and disruptions. It's like put the work in, step back and think, 
what have I actually been doing during this time? And, and even, um, I've run into a lot of people that are like, oh, I feel bad. I'm not doing enough. And then you, you, you know, you dig down and what they're really saying is I feel bad. I'm not in the COVID ICU treating patients, but I've been supporting the team and I've been setting up a virtual grand rounds and I've been working with the med students, you know, and what you realize is that everybody has a role to play. They just have to document that role so that they, um, that they can get the credit for it. I would also suggest, and I'll be really interested to hear your experience with this being on the committee. When a packet comes and it lists all those things up, because this is going to happen. People are going to do this. People are going to really recognize that it's going to be really hard for a committee to not pay attention. Or am I naive? (laughs) No, I think think that, um, well, you know, I I will say I would love for an institution to adopt this framework. And, um, you know, and we're currently, um, you know, emailing a few people just to say, hey, take take a look at this. I should say the COVID contributions CV matrix is, um, you know, up on your site, Mark, on Explore the Space, also on Women in Medicine Summit site. Um, So I would, you know, it's there, use it. But we also know that true change comes often from the grassroots in the ground up. And so if people just started doing this on their CV, I think it would result in people having to look at it and be like, wow, this is a pretty cool way of of documenting your impact during COVID. Now, one thing interesting that uh, we have to think about is, you know, what after this, right? Like what, you know, and so I haven't gotten that far, but I certainly think that um, it's, there's enough here that the way that I would describe it is there are some women who get married later and change their name for whatever reason. And then maybe they have publications before and they're like, what, what do I do to distinguish the fact that those are my publications too, right? And there's a way on the CV to account for that. And it's the same way. This is There's pre-COVID CV and this is your during COVID CV. And there may be a post-COVID CV, which is even a better CV, but we haven't gotten there yet. But I think at least for right now, this, this is kind of what I would love to see on your during COVID CV to better understand and you know what where you're going and what your trajectory has been because as we move into a steady state i have a feeling that people's jobs are evolving and changing like it's not like oh i stood up a telehealth program and then okay i went back to my normal job probably you're still leading the telehealth program so and um and so i think what you're going to see is um a lot of people's missions and jobs are also pivoting. I've seen this as well, you know, um, you know, they either with telehealth or with COVID care or with um, virtual education, you know, people are acquiring new skills and they're skilling up and they're um, finding new ways of serving their organization, whether it be in academia or not. For example, Mark, your example of, you know, have being in a clinical leadership role, tons of clinical leadership for hospitalists, for example, out there in the COVID era. And, uh, and you're you're going to see, um, I actually got an email from Hopkins, from Dan Brotman. They're hiring COVIDists. Um, and yes. I was like, wow, you know, and so this is like the, you know, we, this is not temporary. This is going to actually fuel a pivot in a lot of people's career. And what you will see is that this will allow you to understand how that pivot occurred as opposed to being like, okay, one day I just dropped everything I'm doing and I started writing op-eds, you know, and now I'm a writer, you know? So I think that's an example of why the matrix might be helpful to sort of document that pivot. I also want to 
pick up on what a few notes of what you were just saying. And one of those notes is around this idea of advocacy. You're going to have to advocate for yourself. And this is the way to do it. This is the way to bring all those things on board. So you can say, this is, this is the whole, this is the entirety. I'm proud of all of it. Everything is accounted for. And almost like I dare you to say no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously, well, please. Yeah. Tell me you're not going to promote me when I've been doing all of these different things. And that's very, very exciting. But I also want to pull out one of the other things that you said, and we'll check back with you because you have demonstrated a level of insight that is extraordinarily important and you are on both sides which is also vital we're going to be doing this for a while this has just started we are just opening our eyes to this issue Got it. so in three six twelve months we need to be able to reflect as we go through some cycles as some residency classes come out and their cvs are filled up with what they did in residency what kind of waves are we making because it's critically important and just like the rest of our profession is changing this has to change Absolutely. And I mean, this affects everybody. I mean, I have medical students uh, and college students that are like, you know, I, what am I going to do? I was supposed to do a volunteer at the hospital. I'm like, why don't you volunteer helping organize PPE? You know, so people are figuring out how to plug the plug the holes in the system. And so uh, we're seeing um, a lot of change uh, very quickly for everyone in the pipeline. And so so I think it'll be interesting from, from medical school admissions, residency interviews, all the way to faculty promotions. What is it that people did during this time? And then how did that influence them their um, their time moving forward. Um, I think it's going to be a time of major change. And when we go back, we will be able to reflect on issues like, do we have the workforce that we need? And what happened during this time to result in that workforce that we need? And so these are all very, very interesting questions. I mean, an example from the research world right now is dissemination, huge focus on dissemination, because we know that traditional peer-reviewed publication model, which you and I talked about before with Samir, is, is could it didn't work during the pandemic. There was no way to wait for reviewer two to write out, you know, three, you know, three months later to get that publication. It was going to need to be like a week of rapid cycle, you know, let's get a perspective out around COVID. Let's do a tweet chat um, about what people are seeing. And so it's the same way. In order to share knowledge um, quickly, we're seeing different models come out around research dissemination. And so that's going to also alter CVs because it, I don't know that the currency is going to be, you know, of course, peer review is an important thing, but what peer review will look like might change dramatically. And maybe you'll list your preprints and the fact that you put the preprint out there is going to be very important. Um, and so I think we need to be flexible and think this is going to be a time of great change. How are we going to reflect that on our CVs and to our promotions committees, which don't normally think about change, but need to change with us? You are one of the critical people to follow as we do all of that. And I like that you were able to point out that the committees that do this and the the entities that review all of this stuff aren't used to change, but by God, they have to. Um, yep. 
And that those are my words. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but they have to change. <laughs> they they, they yeah. have to get better, right? We're we're all in a place of saying things have to change, whether it's in regards to COVID or acknowledging the impact of structural racism in medicine. This is one of the places to do it. If you really want to own that and you really want to live up to those statements, here's a great place to start. Having said that, we're going to be doing this for a while. We'll have links to the matrix in the show notes here. We'll have links to your extraordinary Twitter thread from a few weeks ago that really put this into perspective for me. But I also want to say you are one of a handful of voices who are critical to follow. How do people follow you on social media so that they can keep up with where Dr. Aurora is with this evolution? Thanks, Mark. I am at Future Docs on Twitter. And you can also follow me on a LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, I'm Vineet Aurora. So you can find me that way. And, uh, and those are the two major uh, places uh, that you'll find me posting um, about this stuff. And uh, look forward to any of your feedback on the matrix, as well as how to really correct these problems moving forward. And so um, in the interim, I wish everybody good luck. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute treat. I love having you on. This was your third time. There will be more. I love it. Absolute blast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again to Dr. Aurora for joining us. And thank you to the sponsor of this episode of Explore the Space podcast, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Please do let me know what you think of this episode. You can ping me on social media, Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and you can email me, Mark, at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. You can check out the archive for the show, www.ExploreTheSpaceShow.com as well. And please do subscribe wherever you like to download your shows. We will have more great episodes just like this one coming at you soon. We will see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Explore the Space.